You are listening to the Marketing Rescue Podcast, the weekly show where we take a look at some epic marketing failures, along with some pretty amazing brand rescues and comebacks. And now your hosts, Nico and Chad. Hey, Chad. Yeah. I know you live in SoCal, so you're not really a sneakers guy. You're more of a flip-floppy guy. (laughs) Yeah. But... What would be the most you pay for a pair of sneakers? Ooh, that depends on what it's for. So I think probably my most expensive recent shoe purchase was CrossFit CrossFit (laughs) shoes. Yeah. So probably 150, something like that. And if you had to take a guess, what do you think is the most that a pair of sneakers ever went for at a Sotheby's auction? (laughs) Oh man. Jeez. I don't know. A couple million. No, 560000 was the most expensive <laughs> sneaker. It was a Michael Jordan autograph pair that he actually wore in a winning game. And that beat the previous price of 437000 which was Flat Moon Shoes, which was a 1972 Nike Waffle racing boot. So Wow, I have no idea what that is. <laughs> half a million bucks, man. It wow. is serious money. And like usual, I overshot the guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. We, I'm sure you can get like a psychologist to listen to this and do like a psychographic profile of you. Oh, oh yes. answer these questions. <laughs> what, does it, what does it mean about Chad? Yeah, it would be somebody from like NCIS or Criminal Minds, yeah. right? That, <laughs> what's going on with this person yeah so i was thinking on the way driving here before we record we always start with hey how are you guys doing it's like such a weird time that we always everybody i speak to on a daily basis you ask how are you guys doing versus like hey i did this really cool thing today or we're we going on vacation or we just came yeah. back from vacation yeah. or, this cool thing happened it's always like like a damage control conversation <laughs> Yes. Just to check in and make sure you're still alive and sane and all of those kinds of things. Got to stay positive. So how are you guys doing? Yeah, exactly. Doing all right. I personally have been watching a lot of sports lately and it's been interesting to see what's been going on with the the boycotts. Today, the day we're recording this is Jackie Robinson Day. So there's a lot of racial justice things going on in sports. But yeah, I kind of enjoyed yesterday. There was a double header. The Dodgers played two games in one day. Are they trying to make up lost time? Yeah, 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 they were trying to make up for the day before when they basically boycotted and the NBA teams, a lot of baseball teams. They didn't leave they, the locker room, right? Yeah, exactly. They canceled the games in protest for racial justice based on the recent police shootings. The recent, so. the ongoing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, the ongoing, the ongoing issues. Yeah, it's crazy. Well, Today is a really cool story. It's a nice, uplifting, easygoing story, which I think is ideal for our current geopolitical temperature that we live in. Yes. And also sports related. Yeah, exactly. So it's great. Yeah. So let's talk about part one first. In the early 20th century, a 46-year-old factory manager, he took a risk. And in doing so, he basically started that would become one of the most iconic brands in history. But the inspiration from this most iconic products, as well as the inspiration of saving the brand, when it was at this lowest point, would both come from the most unlikely places. So Marquise Mills Converse was a factory manager for a footwear manufacturing company. So we're going to talk about Converse, I'm assuming. (laughs) We're going to talk about Converse. Marquise Mills Converse had dreams of being more than just a manager. So in 1908, 
He opened the Converse Rubber Shoe Factory in Maiden, Massachusetts. And originally, Converse made winterized rubber footwear for men, women, and children. And then in 1915, Converse branched out, recognizing a need for durable basketball shoes for Mm. this new and up and coming growing sport. And so he started making athletic footwear. In 1917, they started manufacturing the shoe for which they would forever be known. But the Converse all-star basketball shoe didn't hit the ground running, so to speak. It was really a salesman from a rural Indiana town who helped turn this simple canvas shoe into an icon. Yeah, so let's enter Chuck Taylor. (laughs) Chuck Hollis Taylor was born in rural Indiana in 1901. And in 1919, he started his career as a semi-professional basketball player. Let me just stop there for a second. Somebody that's very unfamiliar with American sports. What is a semi-professional basketball player versus a professional basketball player? Does he just get half the sponsorship, (laughs) half the salary? (laughs) What what does it mean? Yeah, it's a great question. It was very different back then Mm -hmm. because this was before the NBA and the big professional leagues right now. This was before the war. This was a long time ago. (laughs) Yeah, this was a very long time ago. But even then, there were some professional leagues, and this was kind of a situation where he wasn't really all that good, and it was kind of amateurs that kind of just banded together and tried to cobble together ways to make money mm. while they were playing. So it's a semi-professional a professional player that's not very good, that's what it means. Kind of, yeah. I mean, like, there weren't, like, these big team contracts and all that kind of stuff yeah. like you have now, so. Nice, Okay. Yeah, so in 1923, Chuck walked into a Converse sales office in Chicago complaining about how sore his feet was. And he said that he had some ideas of how to make their shoes better. I would love to have seen that, right? This dude just walking in and... <laughs> Random guy. Hey, I, I, I've got an idea, yeah. <laughs> One thing led to another, and this semi-pro basketball player was eventually hired as a salesman for the Converse Rubber Shoe Company. And then within the year of Taylor's arrival, the company adopted the salesperson's suggestions such as enhanced flexibility, better support, and the iconic star-shaped logo patch on the Mm. ankle, which he believed would protect players' ankle bones. It wasn't just for branding. And Chuck Taylor becomes more than just a salesman. He becomes the original brand ambassador. (laughs) Crazy. Right. Taylor made his living as a salesman by traveling across the country, conducting all kinds of basketball clinics and then using those to sell shoes. And one of Taylor's promotional tools was the annual Converse Basketball Yearbook, which he developed in 1922. It commemorated the best players, trainers, teams, and moments of the sport and provided really good publicity for Taylor's clinics and the Converse all-star basketball shoes. He lived pretty much in motels year-round for many years, and he listed his address as Converse's headquarters in Chicago. (laughs) So, you know, he really was just kind of bouncing around. A former co-worker of Taylor's reported that he had a locker in Converse's Chicago warehouse where he stored and exchanged seasonal clothing items. And Chuck really just became... Converse shoes. The Converse All-Star was Chuck's baby. In 1932, in recognition for all he'd done for the brand and the Converse company, Marquise Converse put Chuck Taylor's signature on the All-Star patch and the classic Chuck Taylor All-Star shoe was born. And today, 
the iconic Converse All-Star is widely known by a second name, Chucks. We've all heard of Chucks. <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting because before he joined Converse in this capacity, he wasn't this well-known basketball player. Yeah. So he literally grew into the role right. by doing interesting things at Converse versus a Jordan coming to a brand. Right. It's really interesting. And if you think about it, Converse was the brand that believed in the feedback of this nobody so much they listened on it and acted on it, right? And their willingness to learn from anywhere created a shoe so ubiquitous that eventually the name that would become the most iconic shoe ever after the salesperson who played only, again, semi-pro ball, right? He wasn't an endorser. He was barely even a pro. And he was a salesperson who made the product better. Man, how times have changed, right? <laughs> Especially when it comes to like brands and sports figures. It's right. a very different ball game today. Absolutely. No pun intended. <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> And in World War II, Chuck Taylor served as a physical fitness instructor for the U.S. military and coached the Wright Field Airtex basketball team for the 1944 to 45 season. And for their part, during World War II, Converse shifted its manufacturing to make footwear for the military. GIs were soon doing calisthenics while wearing Chuck Taylor All-Stars, which had become the official basketball shoe of the U.S. Armed Forces. And after the war, he resumed his career at Converse as a salesperson with a few exceptions. In 1957, Taylor made a trip to South America on behalf of the U.S. State Department. Wow. In 1958, Chuck was inducted into the Sporting Goods Hall of Fame. And after working there for almost 50 years, he retired from Converse in 1968, a year before his death in 1969. Oh, wow. In 1969, he was inducted into the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame. And in the same year, he was also inducted into the Indiana Basketball Hall of Fame. Wow. He is a pretty big deal for somebody that only played semi-pro Oh, right. Yeah. And so throughout the 1950s and 60s, Converse was synonymous with America. Troops had come home from the war with their chucks and the brand, just like Old Spice, had become a part of American culture and kind of the fabric of style and fashion in America. So Converse had become the standard among high school, collegiate, and professional basketball players. They pretty much all wore Converse in the 60s. Converse had about 70 to 80% of the basketball shoe market wow. with Converse Chuck Taylor All-Stars being worn by 90% of professional basketball wow. players. Converse All-Stars were the official basketball shoe of the Olympic Games from 1936 until 1968. And due to the success of All-Stars, the company began to expand and open more factories and they were just dominating. But competition was coming. Yeah. Then the game changed. In 1972, Converse bought PF Flyers, their biggest competitor at the time from BF Goodrich, which is also a tire company, <laughs> which makes sense, right? Yeah. Rubber is yeah. rubber. Yeah. <laughs> this led to a monopoly in the shoe market that was split in 1975 by an antitrust lawsuit. And this was a sign of things to come. Converse days without significant competition was really numbered. During the 1970s, the competition heated up 
and the game of basketball was really changing. Players were moving to more exciting fast break style of the game as compared to a slower, more pass and shoot style of the 20th century. And along with these changes in the game came the need for the shoe to provide more support and better protection. And throughout the 70s and the 80s, a flood of new brands came into the market, such as Puma, Adidas, Nike, and Reebok. Mm. Yeah, so their ubiquitous presence in the NBA was starting to slip as many athletes switched to shoes with leather uppers, wider and harder rubber soles. Shoe technology was getting better. The technology, I mean, you've always seen those videos where they've got like CAD drawings of the shoe and where the impact is and right. the force and distribution. And yes. yeah, it just changed a lot. Yeah, and so shoe technology was getting just way better and Converse wasn't keeping up. They just weren't changing the shoe in any way, shape or form. And anyone who's played basketball, it's obvious you now how played much- basketball being four or five, right? You're, you're really a basketball <laughs> three, player. Three foot eight, yeah, it was very <laughs> successful on the court. <laughs> Uh, I played, but not very well. So, I'm just but, but anybody who has played basketball, it's just obvious now how much better today's basketball sneakers are versus Converse basketball shoes is just leaps and bounds different. And their more adventurous offerings like the Converse cons were marketed heavily, but this was the age of huge innovation in basketball shoes like springs and yeah. air chambers, like yeah, the yeah. Reebok pumps. Pump, yeah. pump it up. <laughs> oh man, I can hear that song when you just say that. It's yeah. like a like a 70s rap song, right? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty awesome. I totally remember buying a pair of pumps and everyone thought it was so cool. Yeah, you pump it up and... And it did provide a lot more support and tightness on the shoe. But the most iconic shoe of the modern era, we all know, is the Air Jordan. You should like go to like a trivia night after half a year of recording these weekly <laughs> podcasts. You know a lot of facts now about random things. Yes. Like the Nike Air Jordan that sold for half a million dollars. Yes, we would do very well. <laughs> you would do very well. I just read something. <laughs> Trivial pursuit. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, we need to start playing that game. So despite their huge marketing budget, the power of their NBA stars, and Converse actually had a lot of really big stars on their payroll, including Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Dr. J, and Isaiah Thomas, Converse just couldn't keep up. The last person to wear all-stars in the NBA was Mickey Johnson, playing for the Nets during the 85-86 season. Gosh, is that real today? Nobody's won. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. It's all Nike. It's yeah, yeah. all Nike. And the only real competition to oh. Nike at this point is Under Armour. Yeah. And I think they have the 10th most worn shoe. Oh, wow. I mean, it's orders of magnitude lower and it's Steph Curry's. And that's the only reason Under Armour is even on the radar is because of Steph Curry. They were just too dependent on the All-Stars brand, right? They had taken too long to innovate with the game. By the late 80s and the early 90s, the market of All-Stars had disappeared in favor of flashier shoes like you just outlined. Basketball shoes were becoming statements and the sneaker market exploded with shoes going for $150 and more. The athletic shoe market evolved into sub-markets of artists and musicians, 
sporting the latest basketball shoes. I've seen so many of those videos where like a rapper walks into his sneaker warehouse and he's, <laughs> right? And it's like in glass. Yeah, on cribs. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> They have exactly. like just rows and rows and rows of shelves yeah. of shoes. And unfortunately, very few of those rows and rows of shoes were Converse. They were left in the dust. And to put it in perspective for you, at the Converse offices, the attitude was overly focused on nostalgia. The company offices had black and white photographs on the walls that celebrated the past. And it was all about the company that used to be versus like forward thinking and leaning into technology in the future. Yeah, exactly. So people were frustrated by this. For example, in 1992, Magic Johnson, who was one of the former faces of Converse, said, quote, Converse as a company is stuck in the 60s and 70s. They think the Chuck Taylor days are still here. Mm. Rick Burton, director of the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon, says Converse is a victim of more innovative and versatile competitors like Nike and Reebok. Running shoes became like slippers, Burton says. All of a sudden, Reebok, Adidas, and Nike made footwear for leisure activity. It seems that Converse didn't realize how the world was changed. Other companies spent millions on design, research, and advertising to expand their lines to include shoes for aerobics, cross-training, and all of these higher revenues meant rivals could spend more on celebrity endorsements than Converse. So by 2000, Converse had repeatedly slipped into receivership. They had debt piling up on an annual basis. And on January 22nd, 2001, Converse files for bankruptcy. Mm. In March of that year, Converse's last manufacturing plants in the U.S. shut down and production fully moved overseas. And in April 2001, footwear acquisitions and other industry partners bought the brand from bankruptcy. So the era of Converse was over. Mm -hmm. Which brings us to part two, the rebirth. Aha. In July 2003, Nike bought Converse for $309 million. And this is a extremely small sum of money for a once iconic brand. Nike, to your point from earlier, owned the NBA, and they were likely to revive Converse as a competitor, which is super smart if you think about it. So what would they do to make this happen? The people at Nike are nothing if not marketing geniuses. They made a plan to capitalize on the history of Converse, the brand, without cannibalizing their performance athletic footwear sales. In the late 2000s, Nike formed a plan to build on the love for all things 80s. And they saw that the 80s were like the new 60s with millennials and Gen Zs and even Gen X had never really lost their love for the golden years. So they relaunched the Converse brand as a heritage nostalgia brand and capitalized on what Converse had become culturally before its demise, which is very similar to, we've seen this a few times on the show that people lean into the nostalgia. Nike also expanded Converse brand to businesses apart from just shoes. And the key to all of this was individualism. So Converse dropped its original kind of all-American backward-looking historical message in favor of an image that would appeal to millennials, individuality and independence. Their 2008 
connectivity campaign played up the brand's countercultural appeal. It featured images of rebellious icons of past decades, including Sid Vicious, Janis Joplin, James Dean, and Billy Joe Armstrong. Some big names. <laughs> yeah. So the campaign extended globally into 75 countries. Wow. Each customized with area-specific celebrities. The connectivity campaign helped the brand post a 29% increase in year-over-year revenue. And Converse CMO Jeff Cottrell said in an interview with Adweek, quote, our whole mission is to inspire originality and to be an advocate and catalyst for creativity. The basic canvas sneaker was turned into a designer's canvas. Some of these Converse were designed by professionals like John Barbados. Others were designed by customers. In 2015, Converse launched its Made by You campaign. The campaign is self-described as, quote, a global celebration highlighting Converse Chuck Taylor All-Star and the only sneaker defined by those who wear them. That's according to a press release on Nike.com. Portraits from international icons such as Andy Warhol, Futura, Jefferson Hack, Kate Lampier, Glenn O'Brien were featured alongside portraits of everyday Chuck Taylor customers. The campaign was in stores online, on social media, and exhibits in New York, London, Beijing, and in Mexico City. It's a pretty big deal. Jeez, yeah, that's a huge exhibition. So the campaign sought to, quote, highlight the unique creative spirit of local communities and subcultures with hyper-local portrait exhibitions celebrating the diversity of self-expression inherent in cultural neighborhoods throughout the world. Whether they are hand-painted, covered in mud, or worn out with holes, each Chuck Taylor all-star portrait tells a deeply personal story of the transformation from a white, black, red, or navy sneaker into a remarkable piece of art. So appealing to the individual and embracing these various subcultures really opened Converse up to a wider market than simply being an athletic shoe. It was now being worn by punk rockers yeah. and creators. Like and, a cultural icon, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so it became this kind of stylistic icon that young kids wanted to wear to school and they wanted to have their stylish version of their chucks. And in fact, even now today, we see that continuing that's one of the most popular things for my daughter in her elementary school right wow. now. Converse. Yeah. Wow. That's literally that's the amazing. only branded piece of clothing or other stylistic kind of fashion name brand kind of thing that my 11-year-old daughter has ever asked for yet. Wow. Is Chuck's. That's amazing. <laughs> so if you... Don't really trust yourself with paint or a Sharpie if you're not one of these super creative types. You can actually still customize your own pair of Converse shoes on their website. And this really moved them further into kind of niche marketing and additional subcultures, including one of those is actually kind of getting into the skateboarding market. So in 2009, mm. Converse launched its skateboarding program with a team of ambassadors that is still active today. Yeah. And they had a ton of special editions and I have a really long list here. I'll just name like a few. <laughs> DC Comics, Pink Floyd, ACDC, Metallica, The Clash, Dr. Seuss, <laughs> Grateful <laughs> Dead, Ozzy Osbourne, Jimi Hendrix, Marvel Comics, Nirvana, Black Sabbath, Super Mario, The Who, mm. Grease, Doctor Who, Scooby-Doo, and 
Miley Cyrus. And a fun fact about the Miley Cyrus, she actually helped advertise the Rainbow Converse for the Pride Month 2017 and designed the 2018 Pride Month collection in conjunction with her charity, Happy Hippie Foundation. Oh, that's really cool. A special edition called 100 donated 50% of their profits to support HIV AIDS prevention and 100 artists around the world created the red designs for this campaign. Nice. So Converse is making this massive comeback. They're really rebuilding into this new powerhouse brand again. And we're actually able to then finally file a lawsuit against 31 companies for alleged infringement after years of sending unsuccessful cease and desist letters. And I remember these knockoff chucks of the same style that were in all of these different stores, Walmart and other brands that were doing it like Skechers, Ed Hardy, Fila, Ralph Lauren, you know, there's a lot of copycats. And so just 13 years after Converse had filed for bankruptcy, now they're the thousand pound gorilla and have the opportunity to really kind of say, hey, you know, Yeah. yeah, this is our brand equity and we're knocking you off. Yeah. And during this time, they sold more than 600 million pairs of Chucks. As of now, 2019, Converse sold a product through 109 company-owned retail stores in the United States and 63 stores in international markets. And even some of their less successful brands like Converse Cons of the 1980s are now nostalgic fashion staples. And the Converse brand, once in the brink of disappearing, is now a strong and vibrant brand again that all 11-year-old little girls ask for (laughs) to go to school. Ask their dads for, yeah. (laughs) Do you know what that means? Doc Martens is on next, right? It's like like a stepping stone. (laughs) There's a lot that we can learn from this entire story. Just because you're at the top, it doesn't mean you can afford to ignore a changing market. We've seen that over and over again, that when shifts come, They come fast. They come Mm -hmm. really hard. And one day Converse was at the top and like literally the next, they were this has been. And so you have to continue innovating. You can't ever stop innovating, even if you're the greatest shoe brand in the world. And even a heritage brand can't afford to focus entirely on the past. So the CMO, Jeff Cottrell, has this great quote from when Converse was getting ready to celebrate its 100th anniversary. And he said, quote, we had a focus group. I'll never forget this. The moderator says to one of the kids in the room, did you know that Converse was 100? And the kids are like, yes, cool. And then the moderator continues, they're 100 years old. That's amazing. And the kid's like, yeah, cool, whatever. The moderator goes off to something else. He comes back and says, I'd like to circle back one more time. Converse is a hundred years old. That's pretty cool. The kid looks at the moderator and says, you keep telling me how old you are. I'm going to think you're old. It was like I got hit by a bolt of lightning. At that moment behind the glass, I still get goosebumps thinking about that moment. That moment made us turn and go into a new direction. And talk about celebrating the next hundred years of Converse, Mm. not the last hundred years of Converse. Yeah, when I heard this story, it made me think that very often we talk about comebacks that when a company acquires a failing brand, they do something very different. All of this Converse could have done themselves. Right. Before Nike bought it and Nike did this, right? Yes. So it was literally just 
cunning marketing and smart executive decision making versus mergers or entering a new market or you know what I mean? Like something yeah. I couldn't do before. All this stuff that Nike did to this point, Converse could have done themselves. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. They had a great product that was loved. They yeah. just had a changing target audience. They didn't change with it. Exactly. And so while the shoe technology was changing, the all-star didn't have to go away. Canvas shoes were more popular than ever, even as the all-star died out. There were all these knockoff brands coming up of canvas shoes. So they just didn't recognize that while their market was changing, the demand for their original all-star was still there. It just looked different. The audience was different. So when we think about personas, when we think about who our target customers are, those definitions that we create need to be living definitions. A persona is kind of a slice in time. It's yeah. one specific dimension in time, a snapshot of what the target audience looks like. And so getting so married to who your target audience is and how you deliver your product that you can't see the forest for the trees is something that happens quite frequently. And people still wanted the classic Chuck Taylor all-stars. Yeah. It was just different people that wanted them. So by identifying who their new customers were mm -hmm. and embracing them, Converse was able to come back. Yeah. And innovation and new technology is not contrary to the value and effectiveness of simplicity. Right. Converse has become less popular while Nike and Reebok were putting on cushion springs pumps, <laughs> chambers into their shoes. But Nike and Reebok also research, redesign, and release new shoes all the time. And mm -hmm. Converse have been selling the same essentially shoe since 1910. You can both innovate and maintain your core brand at the same time, but Converse acted like it was either sick of the all-stars or sick of innovation or didn't innovate. And by the time they realized they needed to do both, it was way too late. People have been buying Converse since 1910 and are likely to keep buying them because they know the brand and their grandparents know it. And it was like a nostalgic brand rooted inside of them. Like you and your daughter, when your daughter asked you for Converse, you knew exactly yeah. who they were, right? Yeah and exactly what they were getting and what they were paying for. And it really works. Yeah, absolutely. So just before we wrap up, the million dollar question is, did you buy her the Converse? <laughs> she got her chucks. She did. What yeah. color? <laughs> Black, I think. Oh, nice. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, that was a really cool story. All right. Speak to you guys next week. You've been listening to the Marketing Rescue Podcast. This show is hosted by Nico Katsia and Chad Childress, the co-founders of KPI Agency a marketing rescue agency. Be sure to visit marketingrescuepodcast.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, contact the hosts, and discover fantastic bonus content.